A drone attack on a base housing U.S. troops in eastern Syria has killed six Allied Kurdish fighters. It's Monday, February 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Meanwhile, U.S. officials say airstrikes on Iranian-backed militias this weekend were intended to stop those groups from attacking U.S. bases. Some Middle East analysts don't think that'll work. This type of retaliation does not really deter Iran. You know, if their proxies get hit, that doesn't really affect them directly. Also this hour, a Palestinian-American writer and analyst who grew up in Gaza talks about his hopes for the territory after the war. Israel will play a security role in securing the Gaza-Israel borders, but it should not maintain military presence inside the Strip. Celtics win and Boston will host seven World Cup matches in 2026, increasing clouds and low 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A bipartisan group of senators has unveiled its proposed immigration reform bill. Among other items, it limits who can claim asylum. But former President Donald Trump is calling on congressional Republicans to kill the bill, and House GOP leaders say they'll do just that. Oklahoma Republican Senator James Langford, who helped negotiate the measure, says he's puzzled. If we have a crisis on our southern border, and we do have a crisis on our southern border, that is a very real national security problem. We should address that and to do what we can to be able to solve that problem, not just hope it gets better or hope that an election solves an issue. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says immigration is one of the most difficult issues Congress faces. If Democrats were writing this bill, it wouldn't be exactly the same, but this is what compromise is all about. This is how we have to come together in a bipartisan way to get things done, and we have. The bill also has aid for Ukraine and Israel. There is no other path forward in Congress at present to provide them with funding. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way to Saudi Arabia. It's the first stop of his latest trip to the Middle East to discuss the war in Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with Secretary Blinken. This is the secretary's fifth trip to the region since Hamas attacked Israel last October, sparking a devastating war that has left much of Gaza in ruins. The secretary is pushing for another humanitarian pause in fighting. If Hamas agrees to release more hostages, he'll be visiting the countries involved in that diplomacy, Qatar and Egypt, and plans to visit Israel and the Israeli-occupied Palestinian West Bank. He's also talking to Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region about how to rebuild Gaza once the war ends and how to lay the groundwork for a future Palestinian state that would include both Gaza and the West Bank. Saudi Arabia wants a clear pathway to Palestinian statehood before it normalizes ties with Israel. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News. This morning, a Michigan jury starts deliberating the fate of a woman whose son shot and killed four high school classmates in 2021. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter reports Jennifer Crumbly faces four counts of involuntary manslaughter. The prosecution alleges Jennifer Crumbly ignored signs her teenage son needed counseling and instead agreed he could have the gun used in the crime as a present. They claim Crumbly failed to keep the weapon secure and erased messages showing her culpability. But defense attorney Shannon Smith blames the husband for not locking the gun away and says Jennifer Crumbly never saw reports suggesting her son might be seriously troubled. No parent would purchase a weapon if they believed their child had mental illnesses. The case could set a precedent for whether a parent can face criminal charges because of the actions of a child. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. You're listening to NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Students in Newton are going back to school today for the first time in two weeks. The teacher strike there forced the cancellation of 11 days of classes. Friday night, the teachers union and the school committee reached a tentative contract agreement. WBUR's Eliana Marku reports. Classes are starting an hour late this morning to give school principals and teachers time to meet for the first time since the job auction was resolved. School Superintendent Anna Nolan says she expects support staff and teachers to respond briefly to student questions and then turn their focus to learning. But teacher Ashley Raven says it's going to be difficult for some of her colleagues. We are thrilled to be going back into our classrooms. That's what we've wanted this whole time. But we realize that for some, there will still be big feelings around it. The school committee is ordering the schools to be open for four days of February vacation to help make up some of the canceled classes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Eliana Marcou. Construction on the red line begins today. Daytime shuttle buses replace trains between Alewife and Harvard this morning. Overnight closures begin at 8.45 p.m. and extend to Park Street. The commuter rail between Porter Square and North Station will be free during construction. Regular red line service is scheduled to resume on February 15th. Elected officials in Worcester say they're facing hateful attacks. A majority of city councilors tell the Telegram and Gazette they received hate-filled mailers in recent weeks. The flyers included racist, anti-Semitic or anti-LGBTQ plus language. This comes after online viewers attempted to shout similar language during a city council meeting last month. A former Quincy man is set to appear in federal court today after being extradited from Sweden. He's facing charges that he helped cover up for his brother, who investigators suspect carried out arson attacks on Jewish institutions in Needham, Arlington and Chelsea. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more. Federal investigators allege Alexander Giannakakis's younger brother targeted the institutions in 2019. Giannakakis is charged with lying to authorities. Prosecutors say he then fled to Sweden with documents and items that they say would have implicated his sibling. Giannakakis was extradited last week after he completed a prison sentence for violating Sweden's firearms laws. His brother was the prime suspect in the arson investigation, but he died in 2020. Federal agents said they had evidence he was motivated by anti-Semitic hate. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at VRTX.com. Marcus Smart made his first trip back to the Garden yesterday, this time with the Memphis Grizzlies. An injury kept him on the bench, but the Celtics thumped the Grizzlies 131-91. to Meanwhile, the area men's college hockey tournament, known as the Beanpot, starts tonight. Clear skies this morning, but clouds move in throughout the day. We'll have a high in the low 40s. Tonight, the clouds stick around and temperatures dip to lows in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. 
And I'm Leila Faldil. President Biden says he wants to avoid a wider war in the Middle East. But over the weekend, the U.S. military carried out retaliatory airstrikes against militias in three countries, adding to fears of a broader conflict. This follows an attack that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan. Against this backdrop, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will be crisscrossing the region again this week. For a closer look, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Hi, Greg. Hi, Layla. So, Greg, let's talk about the why here. Why has the Israel-Hamas war really roiled the region and led to these armed groups in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen getting involved? Yeah, so whenever the Israeli-Palestinian conflict heats up, it inflames passions in the wider region. And inevitably, you see these various players act to show solidarity with the Palestinians in their quest to end the occupation and achieve statehood. So this has been building for months. In Yemen, the Houthi militia keeps firing on commercial ships in the Red Sea. In Iraq and Syria, militias have been firing at U.S. bases and killed these three American soldiers we just mentioned. So Despite Biden's reservation, these American deaths prompted him to order the airstrikes against the militias in Iraq and Syria on Friday and the Houthis in Yemen on Saturday. And once again, here we are. The U.S. is very much involved in a Middle East conflict. So the U.S. strikes in these three countries, will this escalate or de-escalate the current fighting? So the aim is to de-escalate. The message the U.S. is trying to send is that it will use serious firepower in an attempt to make these attacks stop. But that's not necessarily how the message will be received, especially in Iran, which supports all these militias we've just mentioned. I spoke about this with Paul Salem, who heads the Middle East Institute in Washington. It's quite clear that Iranians are willing to fight to the last Arab. Their proxies get hit that doesn't really affect them directly. I think Iran will continue in this medium level of on and off escalation. Okay, but what are the chances that we see direct confrontation between the U.S. and Iran if this continues? Yeah, Leila, that's certainly the big worry, the bright red line that neither the U.S. nor Iran is prepared to cross so far. The U.S. has not hit Iranian territory, even though the U.S. holds Iran responsible for providing these militias with weapons, money, and training. And Iran is calling these U.S. strikes a strategic mistake, but it's not threatening to attack the U.S. at this point. So right now, the U.S. and Iran are being careful to avoid direct confrontation, but it's a very dangerous game. Now, Israel and Hamas are discussing a possible ceasefire, maybe temporary hostages for prisoner swaps. The fighting stops. Would this lower the temperature in the wider region? You know, Paul Salem thinks so. Uh, Here he is again. I think the Biden administration is well aware that the best way to de-escalate wider conflict in the region is to get to a temporary and then eventually permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Of course, getting to that ceasefire, even a temporary one, is far from certain. Uh, Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu says his goal is destroying Hamas. Hamas wants a permanent ceasefire and the withdrawal of Israeli troops. And I'll just end on a cautionary note from CIA Director Bill Burns, who just wrote an essay saying, quote, I have spent much of the last four decades working in and on the Middle East, and I've rarely seen it more tangled or explosive. Wow. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thanks, Greg. Sure thing, Leila.
Senate negotiators last night unveiled their long-awaited bipartisan deal to address the situation at the southwest border. Polls show that immigration and border security are key issues among voters, especially in swing states. And in December, agents arrested about 302,000 people who tried to cross illegally, setting a new record. For more on this, I'm joined by Doris Meissner. She was commissioner of the former U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service during the Clinton administration, and she's now with the Migration Policy Institute. That's an independent think tank that tries to improve immigration and integration policies. Good morning. Good morning. So let me start with the Senate deal, recognizing that most of us have just gotten a look at it. What do you make of the agreement? And would it actually change the situation on the ground? Well, the agreement is clearly the result of long, long weeks of uh, negotiations and discussion and compromise. You can see parts of the bill that Democrats would favor more than uh, not and parts of the bill that Republicans would favor more than not. But it is bipartisan and it is a compromise. And that in and of itself is progress where immigration is concerned. So do you, do you agree that the situation at the border is a crisis? I mean, and what, what makes it a crisis and why now? Well, it certainly is a crisis. It's a crisis for a range of reasons. It's a crisis because the people who are trying to cross the border and claim asylum are leaving dire conditions, not simply from countries nearby, as had been the case uh, years ago, but from countries all over the hemisphere and increasingly other parts of the world. It's a crisis primarily because we don't have the resources and we don't have the uh, uh, authorities in place to fully enforce our immigration laws at the border. And as a result, that's bringing people into uh, cities in the country that are not prepared to process and and, hmm. and and provide assistance for large numbers. So we have a whole system here that needs to be adjusted and needs to be able to handle what is really a new era in uh, migration uh, uh, pressures. Sure. You know, but while the number of illegal encounters at the U.S.-Mexico border shot up in December, we just gave you that enormous figure, that number declined in the first few weeks of January. You know, why is that? Well, it declined because the United States pressed Mexico very hard. I mean, the United States and Mexico have worked together effectively on many aspects of migration pressures, but at the same time, it can be spotty. And so the United States really pressed hard that Mexico do more in enforcement of the flows coming through its own country, and Mexico did so, and it begun to return more people and enforce its own laws more in aggressively. So that makes a difference because this is all connected throughout the hemisphere. So, you know, if the Senate proposal doesn't move forward, and as we've been reporting, that House Speaker says this is dead on arrival, you know, we'll see about that. But what other options does the president have to address the situation? Well, the most important thing about this bill, uh, if, uh, if it were to pass, are the resources that come with it. The talk, of course, and the discussion is about the changes in the law, and the changes in the law that the bill would make would also make a difference. But there's an, um, a very substantial investment of resources in this bill that is necessary in order to handle the numbers uh, that are now coming and the range of places they're coming from. It's not a situation anymore where we can just turn people back across the border because they're young Mexican males that have been trying to work in the United States. These are families. These are people coming from countries far away. And so, and they are 
most importantly, people that are asking for asylum. And it's the asylum system and the asylum system being able to work effectively as a, a part of border control that is really the pinpoint issue here for being able to enforce our laws effectively at the border. And that, of course, means that some people are eligible for asylum. So they should have the opportunity to apply and have their cases heard. But that needs to be done in a timely fashion. And it needs to be done in a way that those who are not eligible can, in fact, be returned to their home countries uh, readily. One, one more thing, and we just really don't have time to really get into it. But, you know, several Republican governors gathered yesterday at Eagle Pass to support Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Some are are offering to send their own National Guard to the border. Are you worried about this? Uh, Yes, yes. That is, again, lining up in a very politicized fashion, the National Guard. uh, There are lots of National Guard already at the border, but they can't enforce immigration law. They're not permitted legally to do so. That is Doris Meissner. She's a senior fellow with the Migration Policy Institute. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Now to El Salvador, where President Nayib Bukele declared victory yesterday ahead of official election results. He's hugely popular in Latin America because of his crackdown on gangs. Emily Green has more. Long live Nayib Bukele, a voter chance at San Salvador's biggest voting center. Here, Bukele has godlike status. Bukele has transformed El Salvador. Using a repressive state of emergency, Bukele has eviscerated the country's powerful street gangs. El Salvador now ranks among the safest in the Western Hemisphere, a remarkable feat for a country that only recently was one of the world's most violent. Jose Lopez says the elections are historic. Lopez lives in Virginia and flew to El Salvador just to cast his vote. Most people agree the elections are historic, but Bukele critics fear it's the start of a dictatorship. El Salvador's constitution clearly prohibits presidents from serving consecutive terms, a problem Bukele got around by replacing the country's Supreme Court judges. Lopez doesn't care. My country is better off, Lopez says, adding that five years ago, people couldn't walk around whenever they wanted to. On Sunday night, Bukele gave a rousing speech from the National Palace to a massive crowd of supporters. His rule is the true democracy, he said. Democracy is what we Salvadorans decide, he said. Since imposing a state of emergency nearly two years ago, authorities have arrested more than 76,000 people. Rights groups say thousands of innocent people have been swept up. And numerous journalists critical of Bukele have fled the country for fear of persecution. On Sunday, Bukele made clear who his enemies are. The press, human rights groups, and foreign governments who have raised concerns about his human rights record. Why aren't you happy that blood doesn't run in the streets like it did before, he said. Bukele ended the speech with an R.E.M. song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And indeed, it is a new era for El Salvador. It may be a new era for all of Latin America, as Bukele's policies become a blueprint across the region. For NPR News, I'm Emily Green in Mexico City. 
Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBOR. We're following news this morning of a severe storm that's causing flooding, evacuations, and power outages in California. Also, U.S. officials say more strikes are coming after they launched a barrage of attacks this weekend on Iranian-backed groups in the Middle East. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, wildfires in Chile have killed at least 112 people, and officials are warning the death toll is expected to rise. It's 719. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. Increasing clouds and windy today. Highs will be in the low 40s. Mostly cloudy in mid-20s tonight. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds and highs in the upper 30s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Offering small ship experiences with a shore excursion included in every port and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Learn more at viking.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Writer George Pelicanos is known for his gritty, true-to-life stories, often about crime. He co-created the HBO shows We Own the City and the Deuce, and his long fiction career is filled with stories about the streets of Washington, D.C. He has a new short story collection coming out this week. Owning Up is about people understanding their own history, including his own. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more. George Pelicanus's living room looks like a living room. There's books on the shelf, family pictures up, a comfy-looking red chair. Every morning I sit here and I read the Washington Post and drink my coffee and stuff like that. So I was, I was reading the Post. I heard cars or vehicles entering my driveway. This was back in 2009. And then I saw these guys wearing black and uh, holding automatic rifles and battering rams start running towards my house. There were cops executing a no-knock warrant looking for Pelicanos' 18-year-old son, Nick. My wife and my daughter, my daughter was 12 at the time, were sitting back on that couch there with the dogs around them. And I turned my head and I said to my wife, I screamed back there, get the dogs out of the house now. The cops bust down the door. They put George on the floor, zip tie his hands. Nick isn't there. And the cops search the house. Nick was involved in robbing a weed dealer. He wasn't armed, but his accomplices were. 
and so the cops were in the house looking for evidence of guns or drugs. I reached out to the Montgomery County Police Department, and they confirmed they executed a warrant looking for a Nick, but denied a request for any more details. But Pelicanos did show me the warrant, and it says, you may serve this warrant as an exception to the knock and announce requirement. The police don't find anything. They untie Pelicanos and needle him a bit. One of the guys right out, I came out here, one of the SWAT guys was looking at my books, and he goes, um, maybe you'll write about this someday, and he left. And right then I knew that I would write about it. He challenged me, you know. The story he wrote is titled The No Knock, and it's in Pelicanos' new collection, Owning Up. It's about a guy named Joe Caruso, a journalist who is reading the paper, drinking his coffee when the cops bust in. The same beats follow, the guns, the zip ties, the pinning down on the floor. Here's Pelicanos reading. And then his heart dropped as he saw something he would never forget. Two men standing over his wife and their 13-year-old daughter pointing the rifles at them, their fingers inside the trigger guards, his daughter visibly shaking, her mouth open, not able to speak, paralyzed. A police officer held his biceps as he lay on the floor. Please don't shoot my dogs, Caruso said. We're not going to, was the board reply. Caruso heard one of the men laugh. In the story, Caruso wants to write about that night, but he can't. He's too close to it, so he starts drinking instead. In real life, Pelicanos was ready to write about it, eager, really. He knew once he started, it'd all just come out. But he waited 15 years on purpose. What was stopping you from writing it sooner, just like getting it all out there? Well, that was because I I wanted my son to grow up and um, so that I could say to you today, he's fine. He allowed time for me to grow as a man. Nick Pelicanos works in film now as a director and assistant director. And develop myself as a responsible person. No-knock raids have been under increased scrutiny, especially after the police killings of Breonna Taylor in Louisville in 2020 and Amir Locke in Minneapolis 2022. They're actually banned in Oregon, Virginia, Florida, and Tennessee. In Pelicanos' story, he writes about the devastating, long-term effects of these raids that take their time to fester and grow. And that's a major theme of all the stories in Owning Up, how time shapes events into something else. There's a story about two guys who knew each other in jail, crossing paths years later. Another story about a woman digging into her own family history and the 1919 Washington, D.C. race riots. But Pelicanus' style isn't sepia-toned nostalgia. Instead, it's something as close to the truth as he can get, something Nick knows firsthand from working with his dad on set. When he writes something, you know that it's technically correct. You know that he he's done his research, he's gone through the process, he's explored various perspectives on the same thing and has come to his objective, you know, as non-biased as possible opinion. Pelicanos calls the title story in the collection his most autobiographical. It's about a kid in the 70s named Nikos, who works a job where he gets in with a bad crowd and gets talked into breaking into some guy's house. It was just the way my life was, you know, in, the, in that era. And on this side of Montgomery County, it was about, you know, muscle cars, playing pickup basketball, drinking beer, getting high. And I worked in a place like that. Listening to Pelicanos talk about this story, it sounds familiar. You, know, you get the sense that history does repeat itself, that the same lessons get taught again and again. And I hero-worshipped guys who I shouldn't have hero-worshipped. And I got in trouble occasionally. But I always 
came home to the warmth of my family, you know? That's all you need. But it's okay, because some lessons bear repeating. Angela Limbong, NPR News. And there's another highly anticipated book release this week. The final chapter of the popular Amulet graphic novel series hits bookstores tomorrow. Wave Rider is the ninth book in the middle grade series by Kazu Kibuishi. Fans have been waiting more than five years for this. Here's NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento. The Amulet series follows Emily Hayes, a young girl who finds a mysterious amulet in her great-grandfather's house. It unlocks a secret world of elves and dark forces that Emily must fight off. Mars Ingle started reading the graphic novels 14 years ago. She already pre-ordered her copy of Wave Rider. I'm very excited, but all, like I think it'll be a little bittersweet having followed this for like literally two thirds of my life. It'll be kind of crazy to have it be over. Well, I want to see Emily crush that weird guy to the bone because that that guy is a, just, I hate him. That's eight-year-old Zoe Sagel. She shares her love of Amulet with her mom, Carolyn. The elves are separate from the humans and there's all this kind of internal conflict and I kind of liked watching those barriers break down and I like the message that that sends for kids. All three fans are dying to know what Wave Rider has in store. But Zoe Sagel is not ready for Emily's story to end. She hopes... There's a to be continued. Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we preview this week's unusual primary and caucus system being implemented by Nevada. It's 7.29. Thanks for starting your week with 90.9 WBUR and for listening every day. The latest news is at the start of every hour, and you can stream us anywhere on the WBUR app. Keep listening. WBUR supporters include Showcase Cinemas and the Museum of African American History with a screening of Harriet and discussion with historian Kelly Carter-Jackson. ShowcaseCinemas.com. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. House Speaker Mike Johnson says a $118 billion Senate proposal addressing immigration policies and security at the U.S. southern border is dead on arrival in the House. NPR's Deidre Walsh says Senate negotiators unveiled the bipartisan legislation over the weekend. It's not a comprehensive immigration bill. It focuses mainly on tamping down and managing the record number of migrants we've seen crossing the southwest border over recent months. It has a new requirement for the president. He would be mandated to effectively shut down much of the southwest border to any new asylum claims. Once the number of migrants approaching the border hits 5,000 people or migrants on average per day over the course of the week. The bill also includes additional U.S. aid for Ukraine and Israel. Johnson says the proposal doesn't come close to fixing the problems at the border. President Biden was in North Las Vegas last night, thanking supporters for helping to put him in the White House. They're the reason that Donald Trump is a former president. And you're the reason he'll make Donald Trump a loser again. 
voting in the Nevada presidential primary wraps up tomorrow. Trump is not on the GOP primary ballot. He's taking part in the state's Republican presidential caucus on Thursday. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Starting today, the commute for Red Line T riders is about to get slower. WBUR's Dan Guzman explains. Shuttle buses are replacing trains during the day between Alewife and Harvard. Then after 8.45 p.m., the closure will extend all the way to Park Street. The T says the shutdown will allow crews to do track work that should alleviate some of the slow zones in the area. The commuter rail will be free between Porter Square and North Station to help riders get around the closure. Normal service is set to resume February 15th. Just days after that, a large chunk of the Green Line will close for about two weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman. The man credited with leading Boston's response to the emerging AIDS crisis in the 1980s is being remembered. It was announced over the weekend that Larry Kessler died last week at the age of 81. He co-founded the AIDS Action Committee of Massachusetts. Ken Mayer is medical research director at Fenway Health. He says Kessler was able to break down stereotypes and address the fear people had about HIV. Larry helped allay those concerns when government officials saw this very calm and um, very reasonable person uh, directing this volunteer organization. That instilled a lot of trust. Mayor says Kessler was able to raise money and recruit volunteers to help care for people coping with HIV and AIDS. Experts say a critically endangered right whale that washed up on a Martha's Vineyard beach last week died from chronic entanglement wounds. Eve Zukoff reports. Experts identified the whale as 5120, a three-year-old female that first got entangled with rope around its tail at just a year and a half old. As the whale grew, the rope became deeply embedded, a painful, stressful condition that ultimately killed the whale, according to a preliminary report. Parts of the rope have now been turned over to the National Fisheries Service's law enforcement arm so gear experts can examine it and try to identify where it may have come from. The death has devastated right whale advocates who say there are just about 350 North Atlantic right whales left. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go. FIFA soccer officials have announced that Gillette Stadium will host seven matches, including a quarterfinal, as part of the 2026 Men's World Cup. The tournament includes games in the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Also yesterday, the Celtics beat the Grizzlers 131-91. to And today, we have a sure sign that spring is coming. It's Red Sox Truck Day. Red Sox equipment will make its way down to Florida for spring training today. Pitchers and catchers are scheduled to begin their first workouts in Fort Myers next week. Highs in the low 40s today. We'll have clear skies early this morning. Then clouds will move in throughout the rest of the day. It'll also be windy, mostly cloudy by tonight. Lows will be in the mid-20s. Highs in the upper 30s tomorrow. It'll be mostly overcast. It's 27 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally, 
Learn more at zquill.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldig. And I'm Michelle Martin. In South America, wildfires are raging in central Chile. More than 100 people have been killed so far, and hundreds more have lost their homes. Officials believe that some of the fires may have been intentionally set. The fires come as the region is experiencing extreme heat. With us now is journalist John Bartlett, who is in Chile. John, hello. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Well, you know, it just sounds terrifying. I think you visited some affected areas. Can you just tell us what you're seeing? Yeah, so what I saw, obviously, was the aftermath of what happened. Um, these uh, these plots of lands on the hillside, which are now effectively just connected by the concrete steps that used to run between them. Um, not much is left, just piles of ash and rubble and certain sort of warped metal sheeting, which a lot of people had used to build their own homes. But it was horrific listening to all the testimonies of actually what people saw on Friday and Saturday morning. In fact, I think you spoke with one woman, Regina Figueroa, who told you that she and her five-year-old grandson barely escaped the flames. Where did you meet her? And, and t- tell us more about her, her and her family and, and what happened to her. Yeah, we met her on um, in a place called Las Praderas, which was up in the hills just behind Viña del Mar, this sort of quiet, uh, attractive um, coastal resort in, in central Chile. We have faith that we'll recover because we're all united here. Um, when we were up there, she said that she um, she got the text alert from the government, which is quite an efficient system here in Chile, about 6 p.m. on Friday, saying that the flames were uh, were approaching her house and that she had to evacuate immediately. But as soon as she left the, the building, she saw that um, the fire was already at the corner of her street. And the only thing she could do was grab her grandson and run up these steps. And she described how the, the flames were kind of hitting her back as she was uh, as she was running. It was uh, difficult to listen to, but there's been there are so many stories like that here in Valparaíso and Viña del Mar. And we know that many people are still missing. I understand that officials expect the death toll to rise. Do do you know at this point what made these fires so deadly? I think what made them deadly is a combination of um, it's an El Nino year, this Pacific coast of South America weather phenomenon that we have uh, every few years, this sort of cyclic weather phenomenon. That makes the temperatures higher and unpredictable. We've had a heat wave here in Chile. It was the second hottest January uh, ever in central Chile in Santiago. Uh, so that was one of the things which certainly affected it. The other is that there seems to have been um, the fires at the moment. We seem to think that uh, they were started intentionally. So mm-hmm. that's something to keep an eye on. So say more about that, if you would. Just how many fires are actively burning and why do the people think that these were intentionally set? Do we know? Yeah, so most of them were, most of them seem to be under control now, particularly in this area. Um, obviously, the cleanup operation is going to take far longer. In terms of, of why they were started, it's very difficult to know. I mean, we have um, fairly good evidence that there were four specific ignition sites uh, up in the hills just behind Viña del Mar. Uh, that's what has been pointed to by everyone from the president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, all the way down to people who work for the National Forestry Commission. Uh, they don't seem to have any doubts at all that these were intentionally started. Um, what I would say is that does seem to be a sort of spiraling descent into vigilantism. We were out last night and there were people running around accusing one another of being the ones to start fires. Um, so that looks like it's something to keep an eye on. But it's a, it's a difficult situation. There's a, there's a lot of shock and, uh, and obviously grieving for those that people have lost. Absolutely. That is John Barlett. He's a journalist based in Chile. John, thank you so much for this reporting. Thank you very much.
We've been speaking to Palestinians about their vision for a post-war Gaza. Today, we hear from Ahmed Fouad Al-Khatib, an American writer and analyst originally from Gaza. He spends his days grieving the more than 30 members of his family who've been killed. The homes he grew up in are destroyed. He blames Israel for that destruction and those killings, calling it criminal. But he also blames Hamas for 17 years of authoritarian rule, for what it did on October 7th, and for what that brought on Gaza. Al-Khatib says Palestinians in Gaza are ready for a fundamental change. And because he's somewhere safe, he has time to think about what that could look like. We need to reverse decades of incitement, and I'm speaking on the Palestinian side, by bad faith actors like Hamas and their regional backers. It needs to be an open part of Palestine because the real resistance should only happen in the West Bank through multifaceted nonviolent means against settler violence and against military occupation. You're referring to Israeli settlers who have been annexing land in the West Bank that is seen as part of a future Palestinian state, and that's against international law as the UN states. Precisely that. Right now, the Israeli side repeats that it has no viable partners for peace and that if the settlements were to be vacated in the West Bank, they would get a repeat of what happened in Gaza. And unfortunately, bad faith actors like Hamas give credence to this narrative. Describe your day after plan. I mean, when you think about the day after, what does that look like? There needs to be a way in which some kind of a security force made up of locals, Palestinian Authority folks from the West Bank, Arab and international monitors can enter the Gaza Strip to help stabilize, and that will require recycling some elements of Gaza's administrative bodies that have the local know-how. And is that possible in this moment when it feels like everyone's dug in, and are there examples where this has worked? There are many examples where organizations that were engaged in political violence were politically and administratively rehabilitated. If you look at the IRA in Northern Ireland, if you look at the FARC rebels in Colombia, I'm speaking specifically about the tens of thousands of employees and administrative staff that worked under Hamas. Any attempt to deny them employment would absolutely be disastrous because you're losing talent. They're going to have no jobs and no ways of providing for their families. Do you see an Israeli role in the security control of Gaza? Israel will play a security role in terms of securing the Gaza-Israel borders to ensure that an October 7th attack can never happen again. But much of that can happen on the Israeli side of the border. It should not maintain military presence inside the Strip. Anyone or any party or any entity that actually engages Israel is seen as illegitimate by the Palestinian population in Gaza. When you think of your ideal future as a Palestinian from Gaza... What is it? A Gaza that is a beacon for stability, a Gaza that is demilitarized and has good relations with its neighbors in Egypt and most importantly in Israel, a Gaza that makes the case for why the West Bank should be free of Israeli settlements and occupation. Palestinians are absolutely worthy of having self-determination and a statehood. And that will take time. But I absolutely believe that out of the ashes of what we're seeing in Gaza, a different future can and should and will emerge. Ahmed Al-Khatib, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thanks for talking to me. 
For more coverage and for differing views, go to npr.org slash updates. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBWAR's Morning Edition, an expert in counterterrorism weighs in on whether President Biden's intended retaliation for the death of three American military members in Jordan will actually work. Low 40s and windy today under skies that'll start out clear but grow increasingly cloudy throughout the day. By tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy and temperatures will fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and upper 30s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and Maplewood Country Day Camp Southeast and Mass, where since 1965 their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim, maplewoodyearround.com. The social media website Facebook is celebrating its 20th anniversary. The networking app was founded by Harvard undergrad Mark Zuckerberg 20 years ago today. Yesterday, the site was originally called The Facebook and was limited only to Harvard students. Two business leaders are joining Harvard's highest governing board, Former biotech CEO Kenneth Fraser and investment firm leader Joseph Bay will step into roles at the Harvard Corporation. Both graduated from Harvard, and the appointments come in the wake of former Harvard President Claudine Gay's resignation. The board will be responsible for finding someone new to lead the university. A French skincare company is opening its second U.S. location in Boston. Biologic Research will open on Newbury Street. Company officials tell the Boston Business Journal they want to be around other luxury retailers. They haven't said when the new location will open. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from the station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. Another week, another primary. This time it is Nevada's turn. Democrats and Republicans will both host their primaries tomorrow. But GOP voters in the state will have another opportunity to vote for their preferred candidate because there is a Republican caucus later this week. That sounds complicated. So NPR's Jimena Bustillo spent last week in the state so she can tell us more about this unusual setup. Good morning, Jimena. Good morning. Okay, so some states are doing Democratic and Republican primaries on different days, but Nevada is different. What is going on there? Well, in 2021, the state implemented several new election laws, like creating all-mail voting, expanding voter registration, and moving the state-run presidential contest to a primary. 
But on Tuesday, both Republicans and Democrats will host that primary, as is state law. But the Nevada Republican Party didn't like that plan, and they wanted to do a caucus like they did before, which also means no early voting. So that'll happen later this week on Thursday evening. Republican voters can vote in their Republican primary or in the Republican caucus, or both. Technically, no law prohibits that. And adding to the confusion, former President Trump does not appear on the primary ballot, and caucus goers can't choose Nikki Haley on Thursday. Hmm. Okay. So these primaries don't sound very competitive. I mean, are the candidates paying any attention? And so they are. It does largely feel like Nevada is already in general election mode. Trump held a rally in East Las Vegas last week, and he had a clear message for primary voters. Do the caucus, not the primary. The primary is meaningless. Vice President Kamala Harris held her own rally about five minutes away that same night. The dear, late, great Harry Reid always reminded us, if you can win in Nevada, you can win anywhere. And so, Harry, President Biden are going to prove you right once again. Vegas residents will also hear from President Biden himself tonight, and Trump will be back in town on Thursday for a caucus result watch party. Though remember, he's already expected to win because he is the only viable candidate in the caucus. So, Kimena, what do you think the results are going to tell us? Well, Democrats on the ground told me that they will be using these primary results to gauge how to focus their efforts moving towards the November election. Here's Fabian Dunyate, the Latino Legislative Caucus chair. In general, Las Vegas has been very transient, and so oftentimes we have to establish those connections for the first time. Our population is very diverse compared to the rest of the country, and so that's why we're first in the West. 30% of Nevada's population identifies as Latino. Both Trump and Harris's rallies were in a neighborhood, East Las Vegas, known for being predominantly Hispanic. Asian American and Pacific Islanders make up the fastest growing demographic in the state, and it's also a very sprawling state with union support and rural voters. Republicans are also looking to run up these margins. Because this is a big state for 2024, Biden won the last election by less than 3% of the vote here. Nevada is one of six swing states that will get outsized attention in the general election, and it's the first one to vote early. So its results are a testing ground for these candidates, even if they're not competitive on paper. That is NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Jimena, thanks for explaining all this to us. Thank you. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 here on Morning Edition, Ukrainian officials now say that more than 19,000 children have been illegally taken by Russia since the war began. We'll hear from two of the children who were taken. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. Program in Business at Bentley. Three years part-time for experienced professionals seeking research skills. Info sessions February 9th and 21st. 
and Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that have a meaningful impact across our community. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories that matter to you. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Federal investigators plan to look into Boeing's top supplier to understand why a door blew off a jet midair last month. Severe storms in California are causing flooding, evacuations, and power outages across the state. And in Massachusetts, students in Newton are back in class today after teachers ratified a new contract with the city. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Low 40s and windy today under skies that'll start out clear but grow increasingly cloudy throughout the day. By tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy and temperatures will fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and upper 30s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. In 2020, Oregon voters passed the most liberal drug law in the country. Instead of arresting users for possessing small amounts of drugs, police now give them a citation and point them toward treatment. The law also funneled more money into recovery. But more than three years later... The drug crisis in Oregon, like many other places battling the rise of fentanyl, has gotten worse. And that has prompted a fierce political debate in the state about whether the measure has been a success or a failure. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson reports. On a gray November afternoon in downtown Portland, Officer Joey Yu is hunched over a city-issued mountain bike. The sidewalk is dotted with tiny scraps of tinfoil used for smoking fentanyl. Down the block, a man officers say is high on meth is raging about his stuff being stolen. Yeah, I do! Officer Yu scrawls on a thick pad of paper. Do you have any questions why I'm talking to you, while I'm giving you the citation? Yu is talking to a young man he stopped for using fentanyl in public. We're not using his name because he was in no condition to give us permission to do so. The man is staring down at the ground, not making eye contact with Yu. The little he says is hardly audible. Do you have any family here? The man doesn't appear to respond. Yu hands the man several slips of paper. One is a $100 citation. Another has the phone number to a state-funded hotline. If he calls and gets assessed for addiction, the fine and citation go away. Like I said, you don't have to you know, go into treatment, but they will give you information about how to get into treatment. That's all you have to do. Court records show the man never made the call. And that's typical. So far, police have handed out more than 7,000 citations. But as of December, only a few hundred people had called the hotline to get assessed for substance use disorder. This exchange, a citation for drug use instead of an arrest, is a direct result of Measure 110. Advocates argued the criminal justice system didn't effectively treat addiction. They also said it disproportionately harmed people of color. And the state expected the measure to reduce racial disparities in conviction rates. But back on the street, Officer Yu says handing out citations doesn't seem to actually make a dent in the problem. The same people that I give citation to yesterday, I see 
today doing the same thing. What's happening here on the streets of Portland has led to a lot of passionate testimony in the past several months in the state capitol, where lawmakers invited people to come weigh in. All right, thank you. I am going to open up an informational hearing of the Joint Interim Committee on Addiction and Community Safety Response. During hearings, some argued that taking away criminal penalties for drug use hasn't worked. Others worried about the safety of their employees and the health of their businesses. Lisa Schroeder owns Mother's Bistro and Bar in downtown Portland. The police occasionally come in and clean up a specific area with their superficial presence, and the drug market moves along to another corner. The quality of life for our citizenry, from the user to the general population, is suffering. But addiction doctors and criminal justice experts in Oregon say a lot happened between 2020 and now, besides Measure 110. The pandemic taxed the healthcare system, the fentanyl crisis got worse around the country, homelessness grew. Dr. Andy Mendenhall is an addiction medicine physician and the CEO of Central City Concern, a social service organization in Portland that gets a small amount of money from Measure 110. He testified at a hearing and in an interview after said people are pointing at Measure 110 and saying it's the reason for Oregon's problems. When in reality, it is our decades long underbuilt system of behavioral health, substance use disorders, shelter and affordable housing care that are the primary drivers. And some treatment providers say if lawmakers recriminalize drugs, it will just take Oregon back to a different system that wasn't working. Arrest records impacts people that are looking for employment. It impacts their housing. Um, It perpetuates uh, a cycle of poverty. Shannon Jones Isidore runs a recovery program that specializes in working with African-American and veteran communities in Portland. A better solution is to dramatically increase our street services and outreach. There's a general agreement that whatever should happen next to Measure 110, Oregon made a radical change to its drug laws before the infrastructure was in place to really support it. But there are parts of this law that aren't being debated. It allocated hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis tax revenue to fund new recovery programs. That expanded the state's treatment capacity, even though a recent study from state health officials said Oregon was years away from being able to treat everyone who needed it. This is our main residence, 16 beds. Joe Bazaghi helps run Recovery Works Northwest, which opened a new detox facility last fall. It's Measure 110 funded. The, the purchase, the retrofit, so the remodel, as well as supplying of this facility was, was accomplished with support from Measure 110. There's a dining room, game area, and off to one side, a living room for recovery group meetings. Most of the people here are really sick, withdrawing from fentanyl. Yeah, I feel um, a lot better than I did yesterday, so... Aaliyah is one of them. NPR is just identifying her by her first name because she's still a patient in the detox facility. She's been here for five days. While we're talking, her boyfriend, who just completed his residential treatment, comes up to one of the windows. I wish I could come out. At least we can talk through a window. You look so good. His name is Trey Rubin. He recently moved to a sober house in Portland. I mean, I want to be successful and do things in my life, and that's definitely the first step, you know what I mean? It's just go to treatment and just get your life back. You know, you can't really do anything if you're not clean, you know? He says he's thinking about what he may do now that he's not using drugs. Like, I love, uh, like, dirt bikes and stuff like that and riding. (laughs) But um, I don't know exactly what I want to do yet, but um, maybe want to go to school to be an x-ray technician or something like that. 
Oregon has faced some criticism for how slow the expansion of treatment like this has been. But if anything, state lawmakers say they want to invest more in recovery programs. Oregon lawmakers start their new legislative session today. Democrats who control the legislature and the governor's office have indicated they're open to recriminalizing drugs, which could effectively end the most controversial piece of this legislative experiment. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Michelle Martin. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A powerful storm has knocked down electricity to thousands of communities in California with floodwaters prompting evacuations. It's Monday, February 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, federal officials have expanded their investigation of last month's blowout on a Boeing plane to one of the company's top suppliers. Everyone was subject to rigorous cost cuts without an awareness of what this would do to technical execution. Plus, we follow members of a newly arrived family as they struggle with the Massachusetts shelter system and wait in one of the state's overflow facilities. I never imagined we would be in this space. In sports, Celtics win and Gillette Stadium will host seven matches for the 2026 FIFA Men's World Cup. Increasing clouds and low 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A small bipartisan group of senators has unveiled a proposed measure to deal with immigration at the southern U.S. border. Among other features, it also provides aid to Israel and Ukraine. But House Republicans oppose the plan. House Speaker Mike Johnson says it won't even come up for debate in his chamber. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy was the lead Democratic negotiator on the bill. He told MSNBC Republicans want to fan chaos at the border. Speaker Johnson would sort of love to um, let this issue lie. He would love for there to continue to be chaos at the border so that Donald Trump has a political advantage. He would love to avoid the question of Ukraine because it splits his caucus. But he will not be able to avoid that debate if the Senate does its job. The Senate is supposed to take a test vote on the bill on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott visited the border at Eagle Pass yesterday. He was joined by more than a dozen other GOP governors. For weeks, Texas officials have been blocking U.S. Border Patrol agents from accessing an area on the Rio Grande, saying President Biden is not tough enough on migrants. The U.S. military says it has carried out more strikes in Yemen against the Houthi militia. 
As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the U.S. hit targets in three separate Middle Eastern countries over the weekend. The U.S. military says the latest strikes were directed against cruise missiles the Houthis were preparing to launch against ships in the Red Sea. This U.S. action on Sunday came only hours after a separate and even larger attack against more than 30 Houthi targets on Saturday night. Despite stepped-up U.S. efforts, the Houthis are still firing on commercial and military ships in the Red Sea. Meanwhile, the U.S. also carried out weekend airstrikes against militias in Iraq and Syria. Those militias have fired on U.S. bases more than 160 times in recent months and killed three American soldiers recently. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Pop star Taylor Swift was a big winner at last night's Grammy Awards. As NPR's Mandalay Del Barco reports, she and other female artists dominated the ceremony televised on CBS. Taylor Swift made history as the first artist to win four Album of the Year Grammys, this time for her album Midnights. Mind blown. Thank you so much. Billie Eilish seemed stunned when she and her brother Phineas O'Connor won the Song of the Year Grammy for What Was I Made For from the Barbie soundtrack. Yikes. Damn, that's stupid, guys. Miley Cyrus won two Grammys for Record of the Year and Best Pop Solo Performance of the Year, and she performed her song Flowers. Other winners include R&B singer SZA, Colombian singer Carol G, country singer Lainey Wilson, and this year's Best New Artist, R&B star Victoria Monet. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Newton Public School students head back to classrooms this morning. A teacher strike in the city ended yesterday after more than two weeks. Union members ratified a new contract last night. Teachers and city leaders were at odds for months over school funding. School committee chair Chris Bresky says he wants the focus on students after the contentious negotiations. We're happy this is over. We're relieved. We're ready to get back to work. It's going to take time, but we want to move forward. The new contract includes expanded parental leave and increased pay for teachers' aides. Newton Public Schools will begin one hour late this morning. Doctors say many children in the state-run family shelter system are going hungry. They say this is a particular issue for newly arrived immigrant families who may be unaccustomed to the food provided and may only have access to a mini-fridge or microwave. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel has more. Aura Obando is the medical director of the family team at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. She says the food that's provided in shelters is often unfamiliar and goes uneaten. A lot of children are losing weight, so that's concerning. Kids who go to school hungry aren't able to learn as well and hold routine information. Obando says her team is brainstorming ways to help, including providing cookbooks at her medical clinic for culturally appropriate foods that can be prepared with just a microwave. Her clinic also runs a popular food pantry. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. A report released this morning shows local employers feel good about the economy. The Associated Industries of Massachusetts Business Confidence Index for January hit an 11-month high. Chris Guerin is the group's vice president. He says the numbers show the more than 140 Massachusetts business leaders surveyed are optimistic. 
employers are seeing what the rest of us are seeing, which is inflation is moderating, the economy continues to grow, and uh, we face the prospect of lower interest rates, hopefully, uh, during 2024. Guerin says the survey found employers are still hiring. Boston will host seven World Cup games when the FIFA tournament comes to the city in 2026. One of those will be a quarterfinal match. All of the games will be played at Gillette Stadium. Foxborough last hosted the World Cup in 1994 at the old Foxborough Stadium. One-time Boston-based singer-songwriter Chasey Chapman made an appearance at the annual Grammy Awards last night. Chapman performed her 1989 hit Fast Car with country singer Luke Combs. The song returned to charts after Combs recorded a cover last year. Chapman began her professional career singing around Greater Boston while a student at Tufts University in the 1980s. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Art from the Caribbean and beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now. ICABoston.org. Celtics fans showed their love for former player Marcus Smart as he returned to the Garden yesterday, this time with the Memphis Grizzlies. The Celtics cruised to an easy win, 131-91. The Boston professional women's hockey team lost in overtime to Montreal, 2-1. Clear skies this morning, but clouds move in throughout the day. We'll have a high in the low 40s. Tonight, the clouds stick around and temperatures dip to lows in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldin. President Biden vowed to respond forcefully when three American soldiers were killed in an attack in Jordan that the U.S. blames on an Iran-backed militia. And this weekend, the U.S. did respond, targeting sites in Iraq and Syria. And it's not over. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan spoke on NBC's Meet the Press. We intend to take additional strikes and additional action to continue to send a clear message that the United States will respond when our forces are attacked or people are killed. Meanwhile, U.S. and British forces continue to hit Houthi targets in Yemen over the weekend in response to militants' attacks on commercial and military ships in the Red Sea. The Houthis, also backed by Iran, are vowing escalation. To examine the U.S. strategy here, we're joined by Dan Byman, senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a nonpartisan national security think tank. Thanks for being on the program, Dan. My pleasure. So with the retaliatory airstrikes we saw over the weekend in Syria and Iraq, will this actually stop the kinds of attacks we've been seeing from militias in the region? It won't stop them completely, but the Biden administration is probably hoping it's going to limit them, that this raises the cost and raises the risk. So I've got to ask, though, is there a risk that it will actually escalate? We've heard the Houthis say they're going to escalate. We heard from our correspondent, Jaina Raff, in Baghdad at a, at a funeral for some of these militia members who were killed over the weekend, saying the U.S. is the enemy. So is there a risk that this just escalates things? 
There's definitely a risk. The strikes themselves were trying to walk that line between sending a strong message and avoiding major escalation. Mm -hmm. But whenever you use military force, things can get out of control. Now, major escalation, uh, for many people, the concern is direct confrontation between the U.S. and Iran. Do you see that happening? Based on the current strikes, that seems unlikely. Mm -hmm. Iran has always had a very healthy respect for U.S. military strength. The strikes were careful, so far at least, not to hit in Iran itself. And Iran's past record shows that it wants to stir the pot but not have things boil over. Mm. So in your view, it sounds like you think the administration has taken the appropriate response to walk the line? Um, I do, but... We have to recognize these are limited strikes, and they'll probably have limited effects. So Mm. if we're hoping this is going to solve the problem, I think that's unlikely, especially in Yemen. Well, let's talk about solving the problem. I mean, the root of all this really is the Israel-Hamas war. The U.S. backs Israel, Iran backs Hamas, and these militant groups in the region say they're doing it in solidarity with Palestinians. So is the key to diffusing the tension about dealing with that war? Absolutely. Now, the militant groups have a lot more goals than just supporting Hamas, but they're using the war as an excuse to ratchet up pressure on the U.S. And if that excuse goes away, then their attacks become a lot harder for them to justify. Now, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is headed to the region to try to defuse tension. What do you think that visit will accomplish? Well, the Secretary's visit is uh, trying to both broker a short-term ceasefire and set the stage for a longer resolution of the conflict, ideally reinvigorating the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Um, It's extremely tough, but there is hope that due to political changes within Israel and Hamas's exhaustion that there might be a ceasefire. Say more about that when you say you see changes in Israel that might bring about change. So there's a divide in Israel between those who want to focus primarily on destroying Hamas and those who want to bring the uh, many Israeli um, hostages home. And they two can't go together. If you're doing massive day-to-day military operations, you're not going to bring your people home. Mm. And there are parts of Israel's war cabinet that believe Israel should be focused on the hostages, even if that means a ceasefire for at least several months. Dan Byman is with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you for your time and your insights. Thank you for having me. More bad news for Boeing. Last night, the company said about 50 of its 737 jets will need more repairs for improperly drilled holes before leaving the factory. A Boeing supplier identified a problem with its work. Federal investigators have been looking at both companies to try to understand why a panel flew off an Alaska Airlines jet in midair last month. The supplier's role in the 737 MAX 9 mess may be critical to understanding problems with the jet. NPR's Joel Rose has this report. Spirit Aerosystems builds the fuselage for the Boeing 737 MAX at a factory in Wichita, Kansas. That's where Joshua Dean used to work. He remembers how management would sometimes throw a pizza party to celebrate a drop in the number of problems that were being reported. But Dean says many of the workers knew something was off. We're having a pizza party because we're lowering defects, but we're not lowering defects. We just ain't reporting them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Dean was a quality auditor at Spirit's factory. His father and grandfather had worked there, too, and he took his job seriously. So he got frustrated with what he describes as a culture that pressured employees not to report defects in order to get planes out of the factory faster. I think they were sending out a message to anybody else, if you are too loud, we will silence you. 
if you make too much trouble, you will get the Josh treatment. You will get what happened to me. Dean was fired last April. He says in retaliation for flagging improperly drilled holes in fuselages. He's given statements as part of a shareholder lawsuit against Spirit. Spirit denies his allegations and is fighting the case in court. Now federal investigators are looking more closely at Spirit Aerosystems and Boeing to understand what went wrong with the door plug panel that blew off an Alaska Airlines flight, the latest chapter in a troubled relationship between the two companies. Spirit Aerosystems says it has notified Boeing about some problems with part of the fuselage. It built. Boeing has halted deliveries of some of its 737 MAX jets as it grapples with fresh quality concerns from a supplier. Once again, there is an issue with a non-conforming part, not a Boeing part, but a part from a primary supplier, Spirit Aerosystems. Last year alone, Spirit reported two embarrassing and expensive production problems that were not related to the door plug. Spirit fired its CEO last October and brought in Pat Shanahan, a former Boeing executive, to run the company. The mindset I have is that we can eliminate all defects. That's Shanahan on a call with investors last November, a few weeks after Boeing and Spirit reached an agreement. Boeing gave Spirit $100 million, and Spirit pledged to improve its quality control. I believe that we'll be able to stabilize here and meet Boeing's demands in 2024. But Spirit Aerosystems and Boeing suffered a major setback just a few days into the new year, when a door plug blew off a 737 MAX 9 jet in midair. Here's the chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, Jennifer Hamandy, speaking on NPR a few days later. The bolts that hold those components in place, we don't know whether those bolts themselves also fractured, were loose, or whether they weren't even installed on the door. Investigators have not yet said what happened, but an anonymous whistleblower who claims to be a Boeing insider offered an explanation. They say the door plug had to be removed for maintenance because the fuselage arrived from Spirit's Kansas factory with damaged and improperly installed rivets. The whistleblower says that's not unusual, with a, quote, hideously high number of defects discovered at Boeing's factory in Washington. Spirit did not respond to a request for comment. Quality control problems at the company are no surprise to industry analyst Richard Abulafia. He says Boeing has been aggressively pushing its suppliers to cut costs for years. You had the people at the top focused on numbers, money. (laughs) Basically, everyone was subject to rigorous cost cuts without an awareness of what this would do to uh, technical execution. What's now Spirit used to be part of Boeing until it was sold off in 2005. Boeing leaders now concede that they may have outsourced too many parts of the manufacturing chain. Here's Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun speaking to CNBC last week. Did it go too far? Yeah, probably did. Now it's here and now, and now I've got to deal with it. And yes, uh, the subject of how we interact with all of our suppliers, that will be a, a subject that we will be working at for quite a long time. Whatever investigators determine, it's clear that Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems still have plenty of work to do. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. After nearly a quarter century, Larry David is saying farewell to his grumpy on-screen persona in the hit HBO series Curb Your Enthusiasm. The final season started last night. To celebrate, two coffee shops in the Los Angeles area were temporarily transformed into replicas of Latte Larry's, the spite store he opened in season 10. NPR's Paige Waterhouse has more. 
On a rainy Sunday afternoon in Culver City, California, a line of customers wraps around the building of what is usually known as Minotti's Coffee Stop. But this weekend, they're not waiting for just an average cup of joe. I am braving the weather for a nice cup of Spite per Latte Larry's. Emily Daly has been standing in line for two and a half hours. Daly has been a fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm since she was five years old. I love Larry. Live, laugh, love Larry. Minotti's Coffee Stop partnered with HBO to convert their Culver City and Venice Beach locations into this interactive experience. Each fan gets a free hot cup of Spite, better known as black coffee, and a dry scone. Latte Larry beans, mugs, and t-shirts are also available for purchase. Graham Rothenberg is president and general manager of The Syndicate, an entertainment marketing agency that put on the event. We've had just people celebrating what's been an amazing run of this epic television show, and they're sad to see it go, but they're also really excited to see what happens. While sipping their spite, fans speculate how the show will end. Here's Rafael Portillo, Sophie Friedland, and Jacob Johansson. I think he's probably going to end it kind of like in Seinfeld. It'd be funny like if it goes full circle. I've heard a lot of people say that they think he's just going to die at the end, which I hope not. He's not going to die. He already did die. Season 5. Regardless of how the show wraps up in April, all fans seem to agree that it's going to be uh, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> Paige Waterhouse, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. We're following news this morning of forest fires that have killed at least 112 people in Chile. Also, U.S. officials say more strikes are coming after they launched a barrage of attacks this weekend on Iranian-backed groups in the Middle East. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll get the latest on a powerful storm causing flooding, evacuations, and power outages in California. It's 820. Hello, this is Simon Rios. I'm a reporter here at WBUR, and this is my daughter, Gabby. It was New Year's Eve of 2022, and Gabby showed up unexpectedly to a performance of mine in Boston's South End. On the spot, she agreed to get in front of the mic and sing this beautiful Uruguayan song called Inoportuna. On this Valentine's Day, I want to share this story of love and music with our WBUR family. Whether it's with our voices or with a bouquet of roses from Winston Flowers, this is the time when we can express our love for the people closest to us. And if you do choose flowers this Valentine's Day, consider sending them from WBUR to support our journalism and lift all our voices. Check out the offerings at WBUR.org. Increasing clouds and windy today. Highs will be in the low 40s. Mostly cloudy in mid-20s tonight. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds and highs in the upper 30s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Jitasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jitasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best— more at jitasa.com. 
from ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side-by-side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldin. When Russia invaded Ukraine nearly two years ago now, it didn't just take territory. It separated thousands of Ukrainian children from the only home they've ever known, relocating them to Russian-occupied territory or to Russia itself. Most of those children have not returned. Some who have are young adults now, and they're speaking out. Where were you when the invasion began? I was living in a foster family in the town of Vovchansk, which is in the Kharkiv Oblast. Living there with my younger brother, I was finishing school the last year before you go to university. And I was 17 years old at the moment. When the war started, straight away my grandma died. And then my mother, she was taken by the Russian military to some sort of medical facility, facility they wouldn't tell me what was it. How old were you? I was 16 years old. So I was absolutely alone after that moment that my mother was taken. That's Rostislav Lavrov, who was moved to Russian-occupied Crimea, with Ksenia Kolden, who was taken to Russia and separated from her brother. I caught up with them after their testimony about this to U.S. lawmakers. At least 19,000 children are still gone, according to Ukrainian officials. But the real number is believed to be much higher. They're sent to Russian foster families, technical schools, military training, and so-called summer camps with the intention of turning them into Russian citizens. Ukraine's prosecutor general, Andrei Kostin, testified via video recording to that same group of bipartisan lawmakers. We are talking about the next generation of Ukrainians. We are talking about the fate of each and every child, some being as young as one year old, who will grow up not knowing who they are. He, along with other international officials, sounded the alarm about Russia's determination to brainwash these kids into hating Ukraine. Rostislav Lavrov is living proof. He may be 18 right now, but he still has the wonder of a child on this visit to D.C. The road was very difficult, but when I actually hear it's like you're in a movie. Lavrov is from a village in southeast Ukraine. When the Russian military occupied, they took his mom. Months later, they came for him, sent him to Russian-occupied Crimea. There, he refused all efforts to indoctrinate him. So every morning, we would listen to the Russian anthem. We were told that Ukraine is not going to exist anymore, that you are not needed anywhere, nobody waits you anywhere back home. And then we were told, like, you need to leave and you need to go to a different place where you're going to study. How long total were you kidnapped? Almost exactly a year, like up to a day. His captors confined him to a small cell when he refused to sing the Russian national anthem. It's six by six feet. There's a small balcony with uh, grates on it. Uh, There's a small wardrobe. There's a toilet. You're not allowed to use a phone. You're not allowed to go anywhere. Russian authorities tried to erase his past. 
They replaced his Ukrainian birth certificate with a Russian one, but he never gave up on getting home. A friend's mom and the charity Save Ukraine helped him. Mikola Kuleba of Save Ukraine has located and rescued hundreds of Ukrainian children and teens. We need everything. Hmm. We need rescue more children. We need provide recovery for, for these kids, housing, food, health. These kids received traumas and we have to help. We have to recover them and reintegrate into Ukrainian community and provide an educational program. And so that takes months, years. Yeah, it's it's a lot of time. Yeah. That's why Ukraine ask United States provide this support because it's very expensive and our child welfare system collapsed because of war. Ksenia Kolden was also rescued by Save Ukraine. She was determined to return home with her brother. He was sent to what Russians called a rest and recreation camp. The promise two, three weeks that we were told that we were going to get separated for, we were actually separated for 900 miles away from each other. Wow. And it turned out to be nine months. How old is your brother? He's 12 now. Oh my gosh, so that must have been really difficult, separating from your little brother like that. I must say this were the worst nine months of my life. She says at the school where she was forced to study, they tried to make her take Russian citizenship. We were brainwashed into saying that if Russia wouldn't have invaded, then Ukraine would have invaded first. What was going through your mind? So I would just not say anything. I would just sit uh, thinking to myself, glory to Ukraine, my country is going to prevail and win. Yeah, you can say whatever. She told me she was scared, that her brother was starting to believe some similar things. He'd been placed with a Russian family and the foster mother. She kept saying, like, there's no future in Ukraine, There's, it's run by Nazis. This family was actually very pro-Russian. They were actually propagating on him this propaganda. And when they realized that I was on my way to get him, they actually shut down all the communication with me. So I would tell him that he's the only person really of my relatives. I would not promise him anything about what's going to be in Ukraine like, but I would tell him that if we're going to be together, it would be all right. Part of me wanted to cry, but I actually did not let myself. All of this guess worked because he said, yes, uh, let's uh, come back to Ukraine. Ksenia Kolden got her wish. They returned home together. Sitting next to her, I asked Rostislav Lavrov how he was doing after being rescued. So I myself is all right. I would want my mother to come back to Ukraine and be healthy. Do you have any news of her? No. He's still waiting. They're sharing their stories to remind the world that other Ukrainians, and most urgently the more than 19,000 children who were taken, still need help. And now Russia is fast-tracking citizenships for those forced to Russia or occupied territories. Ukrainians say it's to erase any documentation of their true identities. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel brings us the story of one newly arrived family that's struggling to find help in the Massachusetts shelter system. It's 8.29. 
WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christopher's returns to lead as conductor laureate, February 23rd and 25th at Symphony Hall. Visit handelandhaydn.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says a $118 billion border and immigration bill unveiled by Senate negotiators over the weekend is a bipartisan compromise that took months to finish. Immigration is one of the toughest issues that Congress has ever faced, and yet we have come together on a bill. It includes USAID for Ukraine and Israel, asked for by President Biden, but House Speaker Mike Johnson says the legislation is dead on arrival in the House. He says it doesn't come close to fixing problems at the border. Jury deliberations are expected to begin today in Michigan in the trial of Jennifer Crumbly. She and her husband are charged with involuntary manslaughter as a result of their son's deadly shooting at his high school. Ethan Crumbly's parents are being tried separately. Their son was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for killing four students and wounding seven other people at Oxford High School in 2021. Flood watches and warnings are in effect in much of central and southern California because of heavy rains and high winds. Tallulah Fisk lives in Ventura County. She's worried about her street. It can get really bad. Like this entire street was like a river last year and that whole building next door, just the bottom floor completely flooded. Heavy snow is expected in the mountains. This is NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Classes resume this morning in Newton. Students are heading back to schools with an hour delay today after more than two weeks of missed classes. The teachers' union and city officials agreed to a new contract that was ratified last night. The agreement includes cost-of-living adjustments, expanded leave, and support for teachers' aides. Teachers in Newton were without a contract since August. Many Boston public school students and their families visited some of the city's museums and cultural institutions for free on Sunday under a new city pilot program. WBUR Solon Kelleher reports kids and parents alike enjoyed visiting the New England Aquarium and the Institute of Contemporary Art. Jellyfish and turtles were popular attractions at the aquarium. Third grader Leo Hurley was with his mother Emily. Leo guided me to the giant ocean tank where families were gawking at the creatures inside. I know there's stingrays in here, and I know there's a type of shark, but I forgot the name. Over at the ICA, Lourdes Figuera, his wife, and two children were visiting for the first time. Then we learned about the BPS program, and we were like, hey, this is, you know, like, we were waiting for a sign, and probably this is the sign. Let's go. Let's check it out. On the first two Sundays of each month through August, admission will be free for BPS student families. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. Bragging rights are on the line in Boston. The city's four major men's college hockey teams kick off the annual Beanpot Tournament tonight at the Garden. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports that they're all hungry for the title. Northeastern has won four of the past five Beanpots and is the reigning champ. The Huskies defeated Harvard last year, the first time the title game was ever decided in a shootout. Those two teams meet again today at 5 p.m. Harvard sophomore forward Joe Miller says winning the Beanpot would mean a lot to the team and the Harvard community. Going into playoffs in the rest of the year, um, obviously this is 
one of our goals at the beginning of the year, something we, we really want to win in, in a tournament that's important to us. Harvard hasn't won the Beanpot since 2017. Boston College and Boston University meet in the other semifinal tonight at 8. The winners of both semis meet in the final next Monday night. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 8.34. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KF.org. The Celtics took care of business at home, trouncing the Memphis Grizzlies 131-91. to They're off until Wednesday. Highs in the low 40s today will have clear skies early this morning, then clouds will move in throughout the rest of the day. It'll also be windy, mostly cloudy by tonight. Lows will be in the mid-20s. Highs in the upper 30s tomorrow. It'll be mostly overcast. It's 29 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR and from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. California is getting walloped by a major, and according to the National Weather Service, extremely dangerous winter storm. Millions of people from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles have been under flash flood warnings. Among them is NPR climate correspondent Nathan Rott, who is with us now from Ventura, California. Good morning, Nate. Hey, Michelle. Good morning. It sounds like it's been a pretty hectic 24 hours there. Yeah, I'd say that's fair to say. You know, it started raining where I am yesterday a little before noon, and it pretty much has not stopped since. Uh, So I've seen some localized flooding here in Ventura, an area near the Ventura River, uh, which is just broiling and brown with runoff right now. Uh, There's been flash flooding, river flooding, road flooding, freeway flooding, urban flooding, pretty much any flooding you can think of, Michelle. It is happening uh, from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles counties. Further north, there have been hurricane-force winds that have toppled trees and caused nearly a million homes to lose power at one point on Sunday. Uh, And then there's more rain in the forecast, so this is very far from over. So how much longer is this storm expected to last? So until Tuesday, at least where I am, uh, this storm is what we call a major atmospheric river. So think of a river of moisture in the sky that's transporting water vapor from the warmer tropics out in the Pacific. And when that river of moisture in the air hits mountain ranges, like the kind that exists pretty much all across Southern California, it forces that air up and it turns the moisture into rain or snow. So Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles, said right now those mountain ranges in Southern California are essentially acting like a big catcher's mitt for all of that moisture, which is totally, totally normal, Michelle. What's not normal is how fast this atmospheric river is moving. If this was twice as intense, but was moving through four times faster, I don't think we'd be seeing big problems. But this is the big concern. It is slow moving, it is stalling out, and it looks like it's really going to continue to remain stalled out over this region for a while. And what that means is more rain on already swollen watersheds, already saturated ground, which just means a greater likelihood of flooding and debris flows. Can can you give us a sense of what this means for Southern California residents like you over the next few days? 
Yeah, well, it certainly means a lot of people are going to have a very uncomfortable Monday morning commute if they're still planning to go to work or school. Uh, the National Weather Service is urging people to stay home, uh, but a big thing to keep an eye on because of the sheer amount of water that's falling. You know, in some places we've seen rates of an inch per hour. Uh, is the potential for some kind of major debris flow, a mud flow through a populated area? Uh, that's especially a concern of places that have had wildfires in recent years and in tight canyons, uh, which is why officials have given evacuation orders in a handful of high-risk areas. There's been some reports in the Hollywood Hills and along the Santa Monica Mountains that, uh, that some debris flows have happened. Uh, the Weather Service is calling this an extremely, extremely dangerous situation. And Nate, you cover climate change. We continue to see these climate-driven disasters every year. This is always the question, though, is this one of them? You know, I talked to a number of climate scientists who study atmospheric rivers over the years, and basically the general consensus is that, yes, at some point, scientists expect to see atmospheric rivers get more intense because of human-caused climate change. Uh, they have not detected that yet, though. So at some point, yes, not yet that they've seen. That is NPR's Nathan Rott in Ventura, California. Nathan, stay safe. Thank you, Michelle. In the era of direct-to-consumer testing, people don't have to wait for their doctors to order lab tests. From a few drops of blood or some saliva, it's possible to order up lots of information on ourselves. Everything from food sensitivity tests to estimates of your biological age. But is it a good idea? NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. There's a lot of buzz about the idea that your chronological age, which is your actual age, doesn't necessarily match with your biological age, which is an estimate of how quickly or slowly you're aging. There are several ways to test this. At the Longevity Lab at Northwestern University, Director Doug Vaughn uses a test called the Grim Age Test. He says it's one indicator of your DNA age, something people may be interested in knowing. I think knowing can provide a person with some additional information about the overall state of their health and provide some prediction for them about what they can look forward to in the years to come. Of course, no test can tell you exactly how long you'll live. What the test can do is estimate your rate of aging compared to your peers. Scientist Steve Horvath spent years as a researcher at UCLA developing the concept. He explains, as we age, changes occur in our DNA. And he found the pattern of these changes can act like a biological clock to estimate the age of a person's DNA. You can use methylation really to measure time in all cells that contain DNA. His research has found that people who smoke and those who have metabolic disease, for instance, tend to have accelerated rates of aging. We spent over 10 years trying to understand what factors accelerate your epigenetic clock. And pretty much any lifestyle factor you know that is bad for you accelerates epigenetic clocks. Conversely, if you exercise and eat a healthy diet, that slows methylation. Horvath says he developed the clock as a way for scientists to study aging. But the Internet had a different idea. Online, there are now several different brands of biological age tests. You can mail off your sample and get results sent directly back to you. Horvath says he worries about the risk of people misinterpreting the results. If you want to really arrive at an accurate estimate of lifespan, you should include clinical variables like blood pressure, 
glucose levels, lipid levels. The results could create anxiety. Scientist Matt Caberline, who is the founding director of the University of Washington's Healthy Aging and Longevity Research Institute, says eventually these tests may give people specific information they can act on. Biological age tests are a part of the equation, but at this point, I don't think they're particularly actionable. And since there are now multiple different brands and types of tests that haven't been rigorously reviewed by independent scientists, he says he'd be leery of ordering a test from a company that's also marketing anti-aging supplements. I'm really worried about the idea of a test of uncertain validity or precision, and then you take the test and then they tell you to buy their supplement, right? I mean, that really seems problematic to me. When Dr. Vaughn uses the test in his lab, it's one of dozens of measures used to come up with a more comprehensive, integrative measure of aging. Grim age itself reflects DNA methylation, and that is certainly malleable. And the fact that it's malleable makes us think that we can potentially slow down the pace of aging in people or even turn back the clock in people. And that's the true value. The test can help scientists measure whether it's possible to slow aging. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us why federal officials will start collecting information this week from cryptocurrency mining companies about how much power they use. Low 40s and windy today under skies that'll start out clear but grow increasingly cloudy throughout the day. By tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy and temperatures will fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and upper 30s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib & Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. HabibARCH.com And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Boston-based Alarity Therapeutics is losing its agreement for a cancer treatment with a Cambridge drug maker. Alarity tells the Boston Business Journal it missed license agreement payments to Novartis. The company says it hopes to re-up its contract and pay Novartis once it has the money. Harvard Bookstore will not be opening a second location in the Prudential Center. In 2022, the bookstore said it would take over a lease from the former Barnes & Noble. Now it says costs and lingering effects from the pandemic would have made the new location unsustainable. The bookstore says it'll invest instead in its Cambridge location. A Cape Cod landmark near the Sagamore Bridge that formerly housed a Christmas tree shops has a new tenant. An outdoor furniture company called Tulp Outdoor Living plans to open next month in the iconic windmill building. Company officials tell Boston.com they do a lot of business on the Cape, so opening a showroom there made sense. It's 8.45. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Feldman Geospatial. Committed to helping Boston build right, from the ground up since 1946, and working to build community with Jazz Night, 
presenting live music weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room in Boston. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. You're with WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts officials have now opened four temporary sites for families waiting for a spot in the state shelter system. Experts say it's better than sleeping outdoors, but the situation is still hard on parents and children. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel brings us the story of one family that's been staying at one of these overflow sites. And a note, WBUR agreed not to use their full names because they fear losing their place in the shelter. In mid-December, John, his wife, and their daughter arrived in Massachusetts with a plan. A friend had invited them to come and start a new life. But when they got here, they couldn't find their friend. Lost in a foreign land, John says a taxi driver took them to one of the state's family welcome centers, which provides resources for new immigrants. There, John found other families like his. Originally from Haiti, they'd fled unrest. John's family first went to Chile. But eight years later, life was hard and the U.S. seemed promising. Now, John found himself shuttling from the Welcome Center each day to Logan Airport each night, along with more than a hundred other migrants. He says at Logan, he used a bag as a pillow and put his daughter, who's almost three, on his chest. They spent 12 nights staying at a baggage claim before they heard rumors immigration agents might find them. John and his family left in a hurry and found a spot at one of the state's new overflow shelters. It's hot inside the overflow shelter, he says, but after nine at night, you can't leave. John says there are cots lined up for about 200 people, and everyone shares two bathrooms. He says if you need to go to the toilet, you might be the 10th or 20th in line. The shelter is only open at night, and everyone gets up at 5 a.m., John tells me. During the day, his family waits at a welcome center. At night, they return to the shelter or risk losing their spot. John says he's holding off tears as he speaks with me. He's never been in such a bad situation. His main priority is his daughter. He glances at her as she naps near us in a stroller. She's almost old enough for preschool, but can't yet walk or talk. He doesn't know why. Aura Obando from Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program says this family situation isn't outside the norm. We definitely see it. It's not surprising to me, I guess, but it's, it's heartbreaking. She says there's a body of research that shows homeless children have developmental delays and learning disabilities at four times the rate of children who are housed. That's why, like, the argument is to really shorten that experience of homelessness because a lot of it could be reversed. And she worries about families like John's who are waitlisted for shelter and don't have access to the services that come with a shelter placement. She says in 10 years, she's never seen Massachusetts in such a dire spot. The past few months have been especially bad. 
we were getting a lot of reports about families being outside in the middle of winter, and I never imagined we would be in this space. State officials have begged the federal government for help, particularly with the growing immigrant population. But John says he doesn't blame the government. He says he blames himself because he's the one who came. But now that his family is here, John doesn't know where to go or what comes next, except to return to the overflow shelter each night. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll look at what U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken faces as he heads back to the Middle East amid widening violence there. It's 8.50. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. U.S. military officials say they successfully struck more targets in Yemen this weekend, controlled by Iran-backed militias. House Republicans say they won't release support a newly released bipartisan Senate immigration reform bill. And more than 100 people are dead due to wildfires now burning across central Chile. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Low 40s and windy today under skies that'll start out clear but grow increasingly cloudy throughout the day. By tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy and temperatures will fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and upper 30s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. A fellow who is arguably the single most powerful economic policymaker in the country goes on national television to talk about not doing anything rash. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto. Learn more about bundling at Progressive.com. I'm David Brancaccio. Prudent was the watchword from Fed Chair Jerome Powell on television last night. Powell told CBS the Federal Reserve is figuring some interest rate cuts this year, but he is in no rush to start. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer has more. The economy is strong right now. It's still growing and unemployment is low. On CBS's 60 Minutes last night, Fed Chair Powell said the steady economy gives the Fed some breathing room. It doesn't have to slash rates immediately to handle some economic emergency. With the economy strong like that, we, we feel like we can approach the question of when to begin to uh, reduce interest rates carefully. And we, you know, we want to see more evidence that inflation is moving sustainably down to 2%. 
It's a delicate balancing act, though. The Fed doesn't want to lower rates too soon and risk igniting inflation, but it also doesn't want to wait too long because leaving rates too high too long could trigger a recession. As usual, Powell said the timing depends on the data. He was interviewed before last Friday's jobs report, which showed 353,000 new jobs were created last month, many more than expected. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. The Organization of Bigger Economies, the OECD, today pushed up its forecast for global economic growth this year. It was thinking a growth rate of 2.7 percent last fall, but now it's up at 2.9 percent, given strength in the U.S. economy in particular, even as inflation comes down here. The Eurozone's growth has been adjusted downward. The OECD says attacks on shipping by Houthi rebels forcing cargo ships to reroute could add four-tenths of one percent to global consumer inflation this year. Markets S&P and Dow futures are both down three-tenths percent now. NASDAQ futures are down two-tenths of a percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, provider of an all-in-one management platform with a suite of fully integrated applications designed to simplify and connect every aspect of business in one software. More at odoo.com. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. My neighbor and I have a home brew going, supposedly. Five gallons of something that, with luck, might end up tasting like Anchor Steam from the famed brewery in San Francisco that, as we reported, went out of business last year. For pianist and conductor Bill Eddins, his home brewing helped prompt a business idea. It's called Metronome, a brewery with the goal of supporting music education in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. The operation already has some 390 performances under its belt. From youth bands to local groups, they even featured a night with jazz legend Wynton Marsalis. Eddins and local musician Jack Schaubert give a taste of what Metronome is all about. My name is William Eddins, but most people call me Bill, except for the IRS. I am the co-owner and chief design officer of Metronome Brewery. We've had many young people play at Metronome, and for me, that's actually the most fun. I see me from many, many decades ago. I talked my buddy Wynton Marsalis into playing at Metronome in September of 22. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Instead of getting a seasoned trio of professionals to play with him, I roped in three young people. The bassist was the youngest at the ripe old age of 19. The pianist was the oldest at 25. So two of the three couldn't even drink (laughs) at the brewery. I'm a drummer in the Twin Cities, and I sent Bill an email asking if he was looking for shows, and we booked a show, and a couple months later, I get an email from him asking if I wanted to perform with Wynton Marsalis, which was a bit of a shock. That was a lot of fun to perform with somebody of that caliber and learn like that. You can't really learn some of the stuff I learned that night, just practicing by yourself. As great as the performance was, the rehearsal was even better, because here was Wynton Marsalis, one of the most famous musicians on the planet, essentially giving these three kids a masterclass on how to put together a performance, what they should do in in certain tunes, this and that and the other, and giving them little tips. It was such an incredible experience. Music has been such an incredible 
focus point of my life and also my wife's life that, you know, we would have done anything to give our kids the chance to explore music. We're fortunate enough to be in a position to have given our kids that experience. We just want other people to have that opportunity and to know that their kids can learn and study without it seriously impacting their own financial situation. So back in 2020, I found myself out of a job as a musician in the middle of a global pandemic. And then I found myself in the middle of my third set of riots here in the Twin Cities. I lived through Miami 89 and LA 92, and here we were rioting because of George Floyd. On a beautiful June day, about a month afterwards, it just occurred to me that A, I wanted to be out on my patio brewing, and B, I was really upset with the fact that we tend to not want to do things that really <laughs> will help our society in the long term. And for a musician, I always think about music education. And suddenly those two ideas just kind of combined and I went, I think I have an idea. I'm stressed all the time about this business. That having been said, I think this is a great idea and I think the company is going in the right direction. We are two middle-class guys. We don't have the resources ourselves to propel an organization like this to where it needs to be. But we do know that the community at large does. Therefore, we're asking people in our community to help us get to that next level so that we can fund music education. Pianist, conductor, brewer, Bill Eddins in Minnesota. Marketplace's Erica Soderstrom produced that. Metronome Brewery is Metro, then N-O-M-E, like Rome with an N. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Increasingly cloudy today. It'll be windy and in the low 40s. Tonight, mostly overcast and mid-20s. Tomorrow, the clouds stick around and it'll be in the upper 30s. It's 29 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.